0: Today's guest, Paul Mitchell, is a servant leader who has spent his life supporting those on the margins in his work and in his personal life. Paul's business leadership talk and webinar, titled A Life in Black and White, is inspired by his unique experiences growing up as a half black, half white man only a few blocks from where George Floyd was murdered. Today, Paul shares his journey overcoming extreme adversity to leading a successful sales firm and his efforts to foster understanding and positive change around race and business. We have an open discussion around the manifestation of systemic racism in today's society, the importance of uncomfortable conversations about race, what we can all do to educate ourselves on social justice, and how to lead a life of empathy and compassion. Thank you, Paul, for being here today.
1: Thank you, Megan, for having me. I'm, I'm excited.
0: So I wanted to start off by asking you a little bit about your life story because you have a really, really interesting and just inspiring background. So do you mind kind of providing the listeners a little bit about that first?
1: Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I, I do have a I do have a unique background, which kind of I think frames a lot of what and why I do what I do today. So um, I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was born in 1958 so I'm dating myself long time ago. Um, and uh, I uh, was born to a, a white white mother and a black father. Now my father was born in 1895 so his fa- his parents were he was a descendant of slavery so wow. um, and and even though even though you know and he was much older when when I was born he was, I think in his 50s, mid 50s or so, but he wasn't very he wasn't around very much when I grew up. But the main thing that I got from all of that is that, you know, there, there's this there's this struggle that was just inherent within my family. And then my mom, who raised us pretty much, um, struggled throughout all of her life. She lost a couple of people that she loved when she was really young um, that she thought she was going to marry to and kind of eventually kind of ended up with my father, which which divorced her from a lot of the people in her family. Her two brothers kind of separated from her. Remember, this was in the 40s and 50s in in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So she ended up literally, you know, in her mind, becoming part of the black culture. Uh, She used to tell me when I was young, don't ever bring a white woman into the house. And this was my white mother saying this to me. So, um, you know, it basically forced her to just become black. And she always said, you know, I hear the things they say, and I, 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 you know, so I don't like it. I don't like that that part of me. And so she separated herself. Now my mom had just immense challenges and stuff. She um she had a nervous breakdown as she got older, but she always tried to to do more than she should, and a lot of it was led her to some illegal activities. When I was in middle school, my mother went to prison for a couple of years, and um, so she was involved in a lot of things and. And I grew up around that. I had an older brother um, who was about 12 years older than me that caused the police to come to our house looking for him. I had an older sister who struggled with drugs and a younger sister and then a nephew who grew up in our house who was six years younger than me, like my little brother, who struggled with drugs his whole life. So there were six of us in the, in the house and four of them have passed away so far that in, our, in our lives. And it's just me and my sister and they've been challenging lifestyles. But what I learned from all of that was the strength of compassion? I mean, I I I learned through my family that you know their struggles were my struggles, and 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 in that everybody just isn't the same, and it's not right to judge people. There was a story with my brother. My brother was one of the people that I um, struggled with more than anybody else in my life, and um, I didn't trust him. He 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 did a lot of things to a lot of people, and I watched it, but. As he got sick, as I did with my mom, my sister, and my, my nephew, I became their primary caretaker, taking care of them um, because they all had cancer and taking them to treatments and doing whatever I could to help. And I was blessed to do that. I realized that I was kind of put here for the purpose of helping them through some of these challenges. And But with my brother one day, we went to the VA. He had spent some time in the Air Force. And while he was going through cancer treatments and he was in a wheelchair, this guy walks up to him and says, hey, Ward Mitchell. My brother said, yeah. He says, thank you. You saved my life. And so for about the last 10 years of my brother's life, he um, worked in in a facility for the homeless and mentally ill. And this was a person that he had found housing for, found a job and helped turn this person's life around. So, as my brother, I said, "How did you get into that work? Because I always just thought he kind of did it because it was the easy job, a way to make money. It was you know he was kind of still gaming the system. you know and that was my my judgmental way of looking at things. and and um he looked at me and he says, "You know, Paul, I did so much bad in my life. I needed to start doing some good. And it resonated with me because, and you know there's a quote by Maya Angelou who I, I always lean on all the time. It's she says, "Do your best until you know better, and when you know better, do better." And wow. that to me um, resonated there for him, for every member of my family, because I did see as they as they got to later stages in life and they were challenged with health and the things that were going on, they tried to do better and that's all we can do. That's all we can expect of anybody. And it led me to these conversations of, you know, talking to people saying, listen, I know you don't know as much as you 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 probably should. So let's learn more so that we can know better which will hopefully lead us to do better so that's kind of how that 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 kind of brought all of us together but growing up with all of these challenges the thing that kept me really grounded was my friends i had a great group of friends that were athletes um and 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 and, you know has still had troubles we did we, we we definitely weren't angels ourselves we did a lot of things that we probably shouldn't have did but we got involved in this church community where we were coaching kids and we were going on trips outside of the city with things we never would have done. I grew up with a famous artist Prince. He was someone who was one of my close friends and and but we had a, a group of friends that kind of looked out for each other and were going through similar challenges and it was helping us get through and and because of the friends I really focused on sports and I was able to to earn a football scholarship to go to college, which you know allowed me to get away from that environment for a while and that's what i needed more than anything else and i just talked to my football coach from high school and thanked him profusely about his ability to help me get that college scholarship to help me stay focused because if it hadn't done that way, well, who knows what would have happened to my life i have a lot of friends that didn't get out and some of them are gone and and some of them got into drugs and some other things like that and a few of us got out and started doing doing okay for ourselves but. The reality is is that we we came up in an environment that was geared for us to fail and um you know it, it was just such a blessing an opportunity for me to get out and be able to try to do something different and break a cycle and yeah so that's that's kind of the up bringing it came from but my life was framed by growing up in a black culture with a white mother um being mm-hmm. very light-skinned and looking sometimes as if I was black or white or whatever people wanted to think of me,
0: so. Yeah, and I've seen that really impressive Afro you used to have, um, <laughs> and, and you said something interesting that I caught. You said, I wanted people to know I was black. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about what you meant by that?
1: Absolutely, so, you know, you when you grow up in a mix, and and especially as light as I was and if you you see pictures of my family the rest of my family was darker skinned i was lighter skinned for whatever reason and um, you know people would look at me and not really know what i was and i was i was i wanted so bad for people to know i was black and so i grew an afro my mom would come to my football games in high school at the time she was dating a black man and i was always I'd always ask her where's where's he at if he wasn't there where is he at is he coming Because I wanted them to know I was related or or Mm -hmm. I was black. So I always wanted to prove er to everybody that I was black and and didn't want any questions. Because literally, I would get so angry when someone would call me a white boy. I would get so frustrated. It was this pent-up thing inside of me, and I didn't know why. And it just drove me crazy. And so, um, but you know, white people would call me the N-word and black people would call me white boy. And so it was this challenge within me where I just wanted to grow my hair as long as I could. So everybody said, okay, he's black. And and that's
0: your identity.
1: Yeah, it was my identity, yeah.
0: So one question I really have for you is now that you have really established yourself as this, you know, thought leader in social justice, um, what was the turning point? you've been through all of this in your life. What was that one thing that happened, that aha moment that you said, this is what I'm meant to do?
1: Yeah. So there were, there were a couple things, and I think the first thing was, you know, as I, as I got older in life, um, you know, one of the things my sister did for me is help me find my faith, help me realize how blessed I was, um, in so many ways. And, and I started, um, reading the Bible every day. And then and, and reading the Bible, what it gave me was the understanding that we were called to help people on the margins. So I started immersing myself in work with people on the margins. And what I found out when I went to do that, that most of the people were Black. Um, when I went downtown to feed the homeless, um, it's funny, I took a young young Black man who comes from a very affluent area in Manhattan Beach. His parents are really wealthy. He's a you know, you'll, you'll see him playing in college or NBA basketball. He's such a talented young man. He came downtown to feed the homeless with me. And as I was driving back with him, I said, you know, and this was probably when he was 15 or so. And I said, what what was your impression today? He says, everybody was black. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I, you know, and when I would go to detention centers, I went for seven years. I saw kids that were black. When I would go to homeboy industry where I did volunteering, they were brown or black it was constant where i would go see these young people on the margins i coached football in compton it was very different than the schools that i might have coached at or i coached when i coached on the west side um it was just that was a really defining moment for me to start seeing that while there's so many people like me that are on the margins i had kind of lost myself because i was so i was focused on business and raising my family and i had lost that and then the thing that really resonated of course is the george floyd murder yeah um, i had so many white friends calling me that's when i really started doing these talks most of my work was kind of behind the building i was going out and just doing work with young people and trying to help them and not do that but then i said i need to start talking to white people in power these same white people that i've been doing business with for the last yeah. 20 30 years i need to share some of my stories with them um, authentically and and hope that they look at me with a little more compassion and empathy and and carry that into their homes and into their businesses. So I think those were those were two really defining moments for me, seeing those, seeing, seeing that, that so many people on the margins, these young people were young black kids and brown kids that needed support. And then also after the George Floyd incident, so many of my white friends calling me saying, hey Paul, I didn't realize it was this bad. I didn't yeah. realize it until I seen it for myself.
0: It's interesting, something you said that really stuck out to me, um, in my experience, I never realized systemic racism until I was playing basketball in high school. Because where I grew up, I grew up in a suburb that is predominantly white, but I played basketball. Mm -hmm. And there's just, black culture has done a lot for basketball. I mean, that sport is very diverse. And on my team, we had girls in high school, it was Hawaiian, we had Asian, we had Indian, black, half black, every every color under the sun. So to me, it was like, oh, my friends are diverse. Like I don't really see, you know, yeah. me only having friends that are white. Like my boyfriend was black. I didn't really like get it. Yeah. And then I remember playing basketball in Palmdale and it was very rough. And there was a security guard at the door. And I said to my dad, that girl's pulling my hair and she was playing so dirty and blah, blah, blah. And my dad, he turned to me in the car. I'll never forget this. He says, Megan, aren't you blessed? You don't know what it's like to have to fight for something so that you can go to college. Mm -hmm. And I went, Whoa, like, you know, he put me in my place and he said, it gives me chills. Like just thinking about it. He said, you don't know what it's like to have to fight for that. That is their only chance. So they're going to do it and they're just better than you because they want it more. And I was like, you know, 15 year old me was like, ouch, but then that always stuck with me because they need, they needed it. I wanted to go to college, but I could have gone to college. They didn't have that chance. They didn't have that opportunity. And so they were, they were scrappier than I was. And they, you know what? Rightfully so they were better than me. They wanted it more. Um, so that was my first experience and that kind of resonated with me a little bit. Um, but you grew up really close to where George Floyd uh, was murdered, and that kind of sparked this, this intense, like, longing that you had to really get involved in this work. A lot of it is educating people on systemic racism, but I think that there's still this confusion around what systemic racism really means. So as a thought leader in this space, I'd love for you to just explain to listeners what is systemic racism and and what does that really mean at, it, at the core of it?
1: Yeah. So uh, systemic racism, it goes back to exactly the, the, the beginning, the root cause. When, wh- what I've learned through all of the things I've done is, um, we always look at things for what we can see, but we don't ever really delve into what the root cause of a one. And when when you do that, you know, and you say, okay, the root cause of systemic racism is slavery, everyone will say that was 400 years ago. Well, then what they forget is the things that went on ever since then, that started from right. them, that created this system of injustice that we still have literally today. So when you think of slavery, you think obviously of the subjugation of black people. Black people came here to, to America not because they were immigrants. You see, there's no DACA program or anything for black people because they're wow. not immigrants. True. Even though even though they came from another country, there's no program you don't hear people getting deported, black people getting deported because they're immigrants, because they didn't come here voluntarily. They came here because they had to. They were forced to come here. And they were so and they were forced to come here because they were thought of as three fifths of a person as less than what a person was to do the work that white people wanted them to do but it was it was absolutely because you know of course there was this supreme thought that whites were better and blacks were less than but it was about money it was about being able to get free 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 work you think about if you work if if Macy's right now had all their employees doing work for them for free if yeah. if any business had everybody doing work for them for free how successful you would be So I I was on a podcast recently, and a guy said to me that I believe in personal responsibility. I believe people have to work for what they get. I said, so what you're saying then is that every black person that built the roads, that built the homes, that picked the cotton, that did all the things that built this country, the very foundation of this country, should be able to get what they deserve based on your definition of personal responsibility. Because at that time, everybody there was being taken advantage of that. The free labor, all the things that went with it to be able to build a country for 400 right. years. For, for all of that time, slavery existed. You think about that. So when you start to talk about a system, that system was started then. And then you, you have movies that this great, this movie that was a defining movie called Birth of the Nation, which mm-hmm. basically made it seem like every black person was a criminal and it was ingrained in everybody's mind that that's the way it is. A black person is a criminal, he or she's he's a rapist. They're here to hurt you, they're here to, to, to degrade you. That was all form, formulated as you know a part of a system just to continue degrading black people. But even when slavery ended, there were Jim Crow laws put in place, there was segregation. They said, you're gonna get 40 acres and a mule. They never got any of that. They never got any of the things that they said. They basically said, Go ahead and take that person away and and go let them do that. Even LBJ said, you know, you can't shackle and chain people for hundreds of years. Tell them now they're free and expect the race to be equal. It's like having a foot race and saying, here's two, you've got 200 yards head start and asking the people that are ahead to slow down. That's just not going to happen. So that kind of system was inbred from slavery, then translated into Jim Crow and all the things that went on with that. But then it was taken a step further where you couldn't even buy homes in certain areas. You couldn't you couldn't invest in real estate. Yep. And so in essence, you didn't have anything. You had to live in certain places, and you could only invest in certain things. So you couldn't build things like inherited wealth. You mm-hmm. couldn't build things that would allow you to be able to ensure that your family was taken care of, like a white person was able to do. And those are the things that are still kind of happening today. So you start thinking of racial zoning and where black people can live, which led to redlining, something that a lot of people don't know about where yeah. blacks were expected to live in certain areas. And a lot of folks don't, and there's a great movie called 13, it's on Netflix. It's about the 13th amendment. The 13th amendment speaks to the fact that slavery has ended. You don't have to be a slave anymore, but if you go to prison, you can be a slave. You can be thought of as a slave. So companies like Macy's, J.C. JCPenney was using free prison labor, a low-cost prison labor, to actually work for their companies and develop their goods and services for years. So that led to the privatization of prisons. That led to all of the monetary effects of actually incarcerating people. So in essence, when you start looking at racial zoning, if you over-police those areas and you put people in jail for five years for $10 worth of marijuana. Then now what you're doing is creating a prison system that allows for continued slavery and subjugation of the people in those zones, the black people, the brown people, that are so different. When you look at, everybody thinks that there's all this crime in black neighborhoods and black on black crime and all that stuff. Well, white people are two thirds more likely to commit the same crimes, but black people are, are 35% more likely to go to prison for it. So. And so when you look at things like that, that continue happening to this day, based on where people live and how they're over-policed and set up, that's the systemic process. The policing system, which everybody is so challenged with, started with the slave patrols, started with basically patrolling slaves and then turned into the KKK initiating the police system. So from the very beginning, Black people weren't were meant to be police, not protected and served like the police were set up. So when you look all the way back on all of the systemic access to that, leading up to mass incarceration, that right now, one in three black men are expected to go to prison. One in 18 white men are expected to go to prison. One in 18 white women will go to prison. Black women will go to prison. One in 100 white women will go to prison. So when you think about those kind of statistics, everything has led to this system of oppression, this Mm -hmm. system of injustice that continues on pretty much till today.
0: I I wanna play devil's advocate on one. I don't believe this, but this is something I hear a lot. The other argument would be, oh, well, we have to patrol the areas where there's more crime and those happen to be in the black neighborhoods. What do you say to that kind of argument?
1: I say, first of all, that two thirds of the crimes in this country are committed in white neighborhoods, not in black neighborhoods. You have to understand, blacks only make up thirteen percent of the population.
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: So, so the reality is, is that it's just vastly impossible for the majority of the crimes to be in a black neighborhood because there's just not as many people. I mean, it's so. When you look at the crimes that, that are being people are being incarcerated, and you can say use those statistics because 35% more of the time those black people get arrested than the white people. So you the crime statistics are skewed because of that. And right. I'm not saying that police are racist. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying they're part of the same system of injustice everybody else is. You know, when they're hired as a police officer, they're being set taught. These are the areas that are we find more crime in. These are where we get more of our arrests. Well, of course, because that's what you've chosen to do. This is where you've chosen. It's yeah. your arrest. Because I, I've grown up, quote, living on the west side of Los Angeles, and I know some of the things that kids have done growing up with my kids and everything else that were white kids that weren't prosecuted the way it is when I coached the kids in Compton who were scared just to walk down the street. So the reality is, is that it's it's a very different system, and, and again, it's not about... It's not about a cop being racist. They're just brought up in the same system as everybody else that right. we've always had. And and that's what they're told. This area has more crime, so we want you to go there. That's over-policing of an area.
0: Yeah. And that's exactly where I was going with that. I think what's interesting is not only where policing happens, I mean, we can go down a rabbit hole of all of the different aspects of policing, yeah. but I think some of the arguments I hear today are things like that. Um, and also, you know, you being someone who actually works so much with homeboy and incarcerated teens, what are some of the things that that you do to try to rehabilitate and stop the cycle? And, you know, I guess that's a two-pronged question, right? The policing comes first. And then what are you doing to kind of take in these kids who have been put in this in certain situations, whether it's their fault or not? Um, how are you now rehabilitating them and trying to? you know, instill change um, on the on the back end of that.
1: And and I take no credit for what Homeboy does, Um, but what Homeboy's methodology is and why I, I, I got so involved with them in terms of helping, because what I would do is take kids from the detention center and literally drive them to Homeboy and say, come here, because when you go to Homeboy and you walk in and you pass a drug test, they will give you a job. And the concept is, I don't care what gang you're in. If you can work together, you'll work together if you're in the same place. So they literally have Crips and Bloods and, and all different gangs working together in the kitchens there. And in their 150 different businesses where they give them jobs. But what they do, Megan, is they create a community. See, these these young men and women have went through trauma. They've went through trauma just by being a black person, by walking down the street. I have a son who who is a... 40-year-old successful personal trainer with a five-year-old daughter who, where I live in a white neighborhood, he was walking his daughter to my to my home, my black granddaughter to my home, and one of my neighbors followed him not knowing where he was going until he saw that he got to my house. He was literally following my son for about two and a half blocks with his baby's, baby in a stroller. So he still perceived him as a threat. Those things can be traumatizing to young black men and women. When you walk down one side of the street and everybody moves to the other side of the street because they consider you a threat because of the color of your skin. When you when your name um, doesn't allow you to get a second interview. When all of those things happen um, constantly. And then and then that that's for people that even have a chance. I'm talking about kids that are in foster programs whose whose parents have got were part of the whole. Crack ep- epidemic in the 80s and 90s and and where it's which by the problems. way,
0: the government put cocaine on the streets, which by the way, anyone listening for this, look it up. It is it is in release documents from the government. This is not a conspiracy Absolute theory. We did crazy. that, which is also goes into the vaccine issue, which I talked about with a black friend recently. Quick aside, yeah. a friend of mine, I said, Why aren't you getting vaccinated? And he goes, Well, if you are a black person, you don't trust the government trying to give you medication. And I went, whoa, again, like check myself a little bit, because obviously there's been plenty of times in history where the government has given medication and or drugs to the black community on purpose. So quick aside, but that that
1: that you're you're absolutely. And it's it's a great point to bring up. It's and it's absolutely true. And people. People who are educated know those things, and because when they say they're drug users, they did that. Well, that was brought into the community for that very purpose, and um, and 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 all that. And because now you've got drug users, now you can incarcerate them. Now you've got a privatized prison system where you got more people. We've got people going from California to places like Wyoming and Missouri to go to prison because they have a private prison there and they get paid for the more inmates that they bring in. There's this system. Of, of all of this, going back to what you just said. And so, you know, you have this community where one of the kids I was I, I, I was mentoring and trying to help was had 13, 13 brothers and sisters from 13 different fathers, and it was all through the mom. And he, he was in the foster system his whole life, and he knew nothing but, you know, fending for himself stealing, doing whatever he could, and he ended up being in the detention system his whole life. He's been in and out of prison. He has a son right now, and I still correspond with him now. And, you know, but he's dealing with that trauma. Every time we feel like we get him to a good place and he's okay, something happens, something triggers. And that's where a place like Homeboy helps because it creates a community of people that says, I, I'm giving you a job, yes, but I'm also here to give you help with what we know is the mental health issues that you have, the trauma yeah. that you've endured just by being you, just by being the color of your skin, by growing up in the environment you went in that was set up in many cases to fail from the very beginning. Yeah. You know? so, so a lot of it, and that's where I talk about even my friends and all that stuff, I, I know when looking back that a lot of stuff was set up for these young men and women to fail. And and that's what's that's what's caused a lot of this challenge. So places like Homeboy not only deal with the fact that because so many places just deal with trying to find a solution. It's like with homelessness, we'll give them a house. Well, giving them a house doesn't help them get through the trauma of being homeless for the last three years. Yeah. How do we help right. people through those kind of things? How do we how do we build out a culture of of empathy and compassion towards those? understanding what they've been through, trying to understand more about what they've been through. So organizations like Homeboy, I tried to align myself with so that not only are they helping with that the, the, the issue, which is finding a job and, and building back your dignity, but also dealing with the trauma that's gonna happen just by being who they were.
0: I think that's such a great example because um, I think nowadays, A lot of people, at least in my circles, it's not so much that I believe that they're racist or they don't understand or they're not empathetic towards the African-American community. I think part of it is they don't agree on which solutions are the right ones. So when when you look at like reparations and other forms of trying to move things forward, I think that's where people have this – sensitivity and, and honestly trigger around what is the right solution for righting wrongs of the past. And so what I love about what you said is this is getting at something deeper. It's not putting a Band-Aid on it. It's not, you know, just giving them a job. It is it is solving those deep systemic racist, racist policies that got them to that place
1: sure. and
0: emotionally healing them. And so what are some other examples of things we could either be doing or are already doing that you think are successful solutions to that to that problem?
1: Well, I think most of what we can do is educate ourselves on what, what the real world is. And, you know, I will start with the economic impact. I mean, most of these folks come up in poverty. So when you talk about why there's crime in certain areas, it's because it's poverty there, and, you know, and that's black areas, that's brown areas. I don't care, you know, you have to understand that white-on-white crime is two-thirds higher than black-on-black crime. So people do crime in the areas they live in. Black people live around black people. White people live around white people. Hispanics live around Hispanics. So all of that stuff is in there. But if you put people in poverty or you put them in a situation where they can't afford to pay, they end up doing things out of desperation. So when you think about this whole systemic process, right now for every, every, I think it's I think it's every dollar and let me just just to validate that every 12 cents of black wealth for is equates every dollar for a white person. So in essence if there's a, a black family they have about $17,000 of wealth versus a white family that has about $184,000 of wealth. So yeah. when you just start there when you just start with that impact. That's why people talk about reparations. That's why people talk yeah. about that. Because right now the, the the playing field, and that includes the wealthy Black people. That doesn't, that's not just including, you know, the people that aren't wealthy. That includes all Black people. So, and that was in 2019. So the reality is, is that until you start figuring out a way to, to help make that a little more level and help mm-hmm. people have their dignity and understand that. And that's where obviously jobs help but mentoring programs to help people learn better jobs, help people get education. My daughter went to Loyola Marymount University, which is a great university, but it's probably one and a half percent black. You, know, yeah. you you don't even see young black kids going in there because here's why. When when you're a black person, you're growing up in a school system in an area that's not as taxed as high as a, as a white area. So, in essence, the taxes in the white area are higher, so you've got a better school system. You've got better teachers. That's where they want to work. They can get paid more. Where in a black area. You can't do that. So, the root of all of this stuff goes back to education, how we treat our children, and how we want to make that as equal as possible to give everybody the opportunity. So, one of the things I believe we can do to start off with is make educational equal to everyone education equal to everyone. Some Sky said, what can the government do? What can the government do? And I'm not a political person at all, but I think all of us, government, business, I think business should be getting involved in this to make the educational system as is, is, is consistent as possible so everyone has a level playing field because that's the differentiator. That's where kids are growing up in Compton and, and coming out with an education that they can't get into college. Whereas the kids in the Palisades are coming out with an k- education that gets them into any college they want. So, That's right. so that then now creates a system of opportunity for folks, because you know, versus versus what a lot of people feel like, oh gosh, I gotta, I got, I gotta, I'm 200 yards ahead in this race, so I gotta slow down and pick them up, and I don't want to do that because that might hurt my family, that might set me back, that might make me make me cause me some harm versus let's figure out a way to make all of this equal versus you know what we have today. And I think that's, the, that's a really great starting point for all of us. Also in business, I think for, for the young black people that are coming up now, I always tell people, the difference in my life was one white man who came to me, a guy named Bill Boyd, when I was at a company called Muzak and promoted me to my first vice president position after I had been in situations previous to my business life that made me feel like that could never happen. I was in the back seat of a car in my first management position. And the my superiors started using the N-word. They started mm-hmm. using it and they used it three times while I was sitting back there because I'm light skinned. They didn't know what I was. And so by the third time, my stomach's churning. I got four kids. I can't lose this job. And I'm oh. sitting there saying, you know, what am I going to say? And I just eventually said, You're sitting in the car with one of these N-words fellows. And they were mortified, of course. But I think their concern was that the fact that I broke with white solidarity. They, they, they're not gonna stop saying the N-word because of that. They, that wasn't gonna they're change. Embarrassed. They're embarrassed. They were embarrassed. embarrassed. They were just embarrassed. And But on top of it, they were frustrated because I broke with white solidarity. And those kind of microaggressions kept happening for me in business throughout most of my career to a point where I just said, I don't wanna be a leader anymore. So I went to this company, Muzak, just to be a salesperson. I don't want. I just want to provide for my family at this point. When I met a man who understood me as a Black person, who cared about me as a person, and decided to mentor me and teach me things that I didn't know coming up in a Black culture, literally things like going to a business dinner, I mean, things that that, that are common for most white people and stuff that you would think are okay. Things that when I would sit in a board meeting with 17, I was the first Black vice president of this company in its 75-year history, when I would Mm -hmm. sit at a, a meeting with all white people, I didn't feel like I had to prove myself. I would be argumentative because I wanted to prove myself and show them I deserve to be there. And yeah. he called pulled me out of the meeting and says, Paul, there's more than one good answer to things. You don't have to, you don't have to fight for everything. And you know, so he took it upon himself to understand me as a black person. I think there's more people like that, willing to do that if they learn and they understand, they get educated, to have compassion and empathy like this man had on me, because what it led to is having four of my kids be able to get higher education, for my youngest daughter to be a doctor. I broke a cycle. Uh, for, I was the first person to go to college. But what he led to me is, and then that caused me to go into Homeboy, go into other places. It caused me to show empathy towards other people because it was shown towards me. And I think for between the education aspect and our ability to find more people to do that, in business today, people like your dad, who, who who said what he said to you when he didn't have to, you know, he didn't have to do that. And, and, you know, that's the thing that that is important for people to start seeing their way to be having the heart to wanna to understand this and share this with their family, their friends and their work associates.
0: I love what you're saying about empathy. And it brings me to another quote I hear often from the white community, which is, well, I had nothing. Well, I started from the bottom. Well, I grew up in poverty, and I didn't have I had an absentee parent and or drugs don't uh, discriminate. I had drugs in my family. You hear these arguments sometimes like as if recognizing that race inequality and people' struggles somehow diminishes yours, yeah. And what intrigues me about that is two things. One, it's not a competition on who had it harder. Um, I think a lot of people have had it hard. I think what I'm learning is it's not about you not having it hard. It's about you not having it hard because you, of the color of your skin. And so when I see that and, and people say, well, life's not fair, you know, I, I hear that's like the argument that I do hear sometimes in in the suburbs. I It's like okay, we've now accepted that there's systemic racism, but we don't agree or we have some kind of trigger around some of these more, um, I guess you could say, progressive thinking, right? And so what I want to talk to you about is when we're having difficult discussions that sometimes border political with people in our lives or people that we're trying to educate, what is your best advice on kind of treading those waters and dealing with those kinds of arguments?
1: Sure. Uh, I, you know, and I, I did this in a recent podcast. For me, um, the thing is just to to speak to my experience. It's speak to what I've seen and what I've been through. You know, people can can question all the facts and all the things that you say. They can question all of that, but they can't question your testimony. They can't question who you are. So for me, I just share, you know, when I talk to people, a lot of my talk is where I came from and why I have a unique perspective and the things I went through, um, and it 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 has nothing to do with what's political or or any of that kind of stuff. And I speak to the fact that yes, just have, do your research and have some empathy and compassion towards me, towards a person you know, a person you see that because. This is what I've been through, and this is what I had to tell my sons. Um, when the police stop you, not if, but when. This is what you have to do. Those are things that white parents don't always have to have conversations. And and you you said it perfectly, Megan, is that, you know, everybody has problems. It's just your problems aren't because of the color of your skin. And when you're born with the color of your skin, I have a black granddaughter and a black grandson, and I know the trauma they're gonna go through, and it breaks your heart. As a parent, you know, the black mortality rate is so much lower than whites, and it's all because of this trauma. It creates high blood pressure. It creates fear. Mm -hmm. Every night when your child goes out, you're scared to death. You don't know if they're going to come back. And that's a fear. And and sometimes it's it's an irrational fear, but it's based on things like the Emmett Till incident in 1955 Mm -hmm. when a white woman just said that that young man said something to me and he was brutally murdered. Right. And then three, four years ago, she said, no, it didn't happen. That right. means you can weaponize your whiteness at any time against a black person. And that that fear, that challenge, and I, and when I share that with people to say, listen, that's what that's truly what a black person feels. That's what we go through. So just have some empathy for it. Go back and look at the history and see how we got here and why we feel the way we do. Of course, we've made progress. We're crazy yeah. to say we haven't made progress. Yeah, but it's still that feeling in in, in 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 compassion towards what someone other than yourself has to go through, you know. And and so I know I have privilege. I'm not gonna say I don't. I know I have privilege because I've been light skinned. I know I have privilege because I I can articulate I can articulate things. I know I have privilege because of the blessings of the things that, that the people that I've met that have helped me in my life, the wonderful men and women that have helped me in my life. I know I've had privilege. And and I know a lot of people that don't have that same privilege, privilege that I grew up with. And I have empathy and compassion towards them. So yeah. that's the way we're supposed to be. That's the way, that's what we are called to do. So when we make excuses and say, you know, that's not true, then that means we're just not listening. We right. just... We 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 want the problem to be someone else's and we don't want to hear it. And I know it's scary and I know it's hard. And I and I get that. You know, it's not my my good friend, it was my the son of my mentor, was the first person who called me after George Floyd. Now, my mentor treated me a certain way. He understood me, but he didn't share any of that with his kids because he didn't have to. He didn't want to scare them. He didn't want to say the world was this way. Yeah. So this guy, Bob, who was a wonderful man lives in Davidson, North Carolina. And he said to me, he says, Paul, you know, I think I've not took this seriously because I knew my family would be ostracized. He would have had to break with white solidarity. It mm-hmm. means a lot. It, it's like, you know, my daughter, or my son's going to be treated differently because of the way I feel. I don't want to do that. That's a big risk for me. And I don't have to do it. So th- th- there's this there's this empathy I have towards white people because of that. And I sometimes a black person looks at me and says, what's wrong with you? Why would you care about that? Well, they're a person, too. They have feelings, too. Let's talk through it and figure out a way that we can do it so that it, it doesn't it's, it doesn't have to be harmful. You know, and I, the first thing I said to my friend was, well, welcome to my world. You know, that's the way it's been for me my whole life. But no, I don't want anybody to ostracize your family. He says it's too late now. I already know that I can't I can't forget it now. Right. And so so those are the kind of things that I think, you know, overall, we just, we all have to think through and understand. And that's what I say to people through my experiences, why you should just consider having some compassion and empathy towards what folks are going through, people of color.
0: I think I just had an epiphany from what you said. Um, I was going to ask you, why do you think the Floyd murder really brought a lot of this to the surface. And I think that kind of answers the question. We got past quote unquote slavery and some parts of racism. We had a black president. People thought we're moving in the right direction. What else do we need to do? We're moving in the right direction. Right. And I think that was such a emotional reaction from so many people of all colors to say, we really aren't as far as maybe we thought we were and we can't look the other way now. Yeah. And what you just said was, in white solidarity, some of us maybe can look the other way because it's not "quote unquote" happening to us. So it it feels a little bit more distanced of a of a emotion. But when you have to watch someone die, then you then you feel like you're a part of it. You feel like what am what am I doing? And that's yeah. that actually just resonated with me. I think. Maybe the world is starting to realize like they couldn't sit back any longer. And as sad as that is to say out loud, I think I think that some people felt more distanced because I mean, if you look at at people, even I'm just going to use myself as as an example, because I, you know, I know my truth. I, I grew up in the suburbs and I didn't really think about I didn't really think about race as an issue today. I thought of it the same way I think of my Jewish heritage. I was like, yeah, we got screwed in the Holocaust. Like it sucks, whatever, we're moving on, you know? And because of my, privilege is the wrong word, but my experience being around so many black Americans all the time, it didn't really occur to me because to me, they were my friends. So I didn't really get it until I started getting older. And, you know, someone told me, when I had a black boyfriend in high school, she said, I don't believe in interracial marriage or children. Mm-hmm. And I was 18, and that was the first time I came home to my parents. And I said, This lady that we hired to do some of my college counseling just told me that she doesn't believe in interracial marriage or children. And, you know, her son has done that and she like disowns her. She she loves her, her grandbaby, but not, not completely. And she said this to me as an 18-year-old dating a black man. It was moments like that when I had to realize, like, I was living in a bubble because most of the world doesn't live that way. And yeah. my parents wanted me to live in a nice neighborhood, but that also meant that I was detached from the reality of race. And um, that was something I I've had to, like, really check myself and learn through because I grew up in so much privilege that I didn't even no,
1: recognize. It's, well, and, and, and honestly, you think about a black person, most black people that are successful, me included, um move out of black neighborhoods because black neighborhoods are thought of as ghettos they're over policed yeah. they're they're not you know so in essence to your point i want to move to a nice neighborhood well i'm going to move into a white neighborhood and during during you know during certain times in segregation and stuff if over 10 percent of the neighborhood became black white people moved out it's called white flight it just moved out Wow. And so that's so there's never any that. opportunity for us to have segregated neighborhoods ever because of that. And and it was because as soon as it got past that threshold, it became a ghetto. It became a bad neighborhood. And that's that's always the you know, the whole world word thugs, the whole world, all of that, that's all connotation for blackness. It's all connotation, you know, when you say the word ghetto, what do you think? It's a black neighborhood. You yeah. don't think we're white neighbor any white neighborhoods it's ghettos. So that's 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 the thought process we go through, and you know, I was reading this article that James Baldwin uh, actually interview He did. He's a great author for in, back in 1962, and he was talking to this guy named um, James Kilpatrick, who at the time was a segregationist. He 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 got on the radio and he talked to people. He he probably sounded like a staunch conservative from this day of what you hear of people talk like that, and he was of that day. And then he also had uh Malcolm Exxon from the Nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. And James Baldwin had this unique perspective where he said any any race that wants to be superior to the other race is immoral. So from a white race perspective or from a black race perspective, because the concept of the Nation of Islam was we want we want to become superior to the black race. That wasn't the concept that's that Anybody should strive to. And what the white race was doing at the time, especially trying to be morally and and intellectually and physically and everything superior was just as wrong. And he he made a point of of those two separations, but he also said, but you have to understand things like the nation of Islam, and and today Black Lives Matter, whatever you want to call it, whether it's Antifa, whatever, is born out of that, that. resistance for white people to accept blacks as equals that resistance to continue the injustice and oppression that continues going on all of these groups are born out of that none of them would ever happen if it wasn't for racism if it wasn't the way black people were treated none of that stuff would happen so um and then you know you start looking at things like that are white supremacists today or kkk all of that was born out of the fear that Perhaps you now blacks are free. We've got to keep holding them down. We can't let them become superior to us. We can't even let them become equal to us. So those kind of things end up coming out of that. And, and what James Baldwin said is none of that's the way we're supposed to be. All of those things are immoral. Right. And it starts with white people right now educating themselves and saying that we don't need to have that anymore. We don't need to be you know have supremacy over anyone. Um, we we just want everybody to have the same equal opportunity, and until that happens, we're going to continue having this kind of racism, and we're going to continue having people saying what they said to your 18-year-old self right. that shouldn't have ever been said and really shouldn't matter.
0: I think I want to kind of wrap this up on on something you said earlier and kind of – connecting it back to a lot of these groups. We have a lot of um, difference of opinion on how to handle a lot of this, but I think part of what we're saying is like, meet me in the middle, right? Yeah. Um, lead, if you're leading with empathy and compassion, you're willing to talk to each other and have a have an honest conversation. And maybe your tactics on how to solve it, you may disagree politically or just in general, but let's but, let's see where we can agree and and trust that your experience is your experience, right? And I think what you said in the beginning was, well, you can argue facts and statistics all day, but you can't argue my experience. Yeah. So, what can white people do to sit there and listen and to educate themselves? Like what are some resources that you suggest? And as a community, as a country, like what do you what should we be doing to move forward?
1: So there's three books I wrote, read early on in this process that I thought was really important, and they were by three white authors. Um, white Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, that that basically talks about how hard it is to talk to white people about race, what kind of pushback you get and the challenges. And she's a renowned psychologist who basically has done studies on this forever. Um, there's a book called Dear White America from Tim Wise that, that, Definitely quote some statistics in there, and he has a lot of thumb sketches in there in terms of what, you know, what you can go to and and resources you can look at. But it speaks exactly to, you know, a white person's experience dealing with white supremacy and understanding it from a white person's perspective. And the third one is The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. And that's a book that basically talks about the redlining and what happened with real estate when uh, you know, men came back from World War II and black men couldn't buy a home in Manhattan Beach, but white people could. So today their kids are getting millions of dollars of inherited wealth where black men weren't able to get GI loans and things like that that's that happened to basically continue oppressing black people. Those books, those three books really were meaningful to me to understand exactly the perspective of white people who actually took the time to do the research to understand what all of this meant and start to take action and then i think the the thing went come on out of that is to immerse yourself in different environments you know to you you know for example you you're 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 in the minority of of white people that actually grew up in a white neighborhood that were around other black people i mean a lot of white people have never right. even engaged with black people so Um, you know, part of the reason I started feeding the homeless and going to homeboy and going to the detention center was to immerse myself in uncomfortable situations. There's a great book by Emmanuel Ocho, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. You know, if you go out and you start thinking about having uncomfortable conversations with people and and actively listening, actively listening, you know, that's the key is not just listening, thinking with my own thing, because they're Because we, you know, there's this great book called Think Again, and it says, you know, it basically talks about, you know, that we we are not looking to try to affirm our beliefs. You know, we're looking to allow our beliefs to evolve. And if we allow our beliefs to evolve, then we can start actually getting to a place where we can start thinking about things differently. We can know better, and so we can do better. So if if we read books like that, that'll educate us. If we immerse ourselves in other environments that we're not comfortable with, to get to know things that we don't know. And if we start, you know, really wanting to evolve, then I think we can make a difference. And that's that's the advice I try to say to everybody who's willing to do that. And and I'm shocked, I, I mean, I'm, I'm always pleasantly surprised after I give these talks of the few people that reach out and just want to learn more and understand, yeah. you know, I might talk to 40 people and I might have three of them call and schedule a meeting with me afterwards so I can just talk to them and, they wanna hear more and find out what they could do. And um, that's always refreshing and that always gives me hope because that's really what what the goal is to do, is to just try to help one person at a time understand this so that they can go in their community and do the same. And one last story is there's a guy that was on one of my webinars who, who, who called me afterwards and we talked and then he had a conversation with his brother and brother-in-law and they brought up some offensive racial words. And discussions, and he said in the past, I would laugh at him. I would laugh with him, and we would just joke. This time, I couldn't do that because I knew too much. And he says, and Paul, I might never have the same relationship with my brother and brother-in-law again. You know, so um, he says, but I can't stand by anymore and let those things be okay. And that takes great courage, and and that, that takes a conviction. But most of all, it takes the education to know what is right and what is wrong, and then wanting to do something about it.
0: Yeah, that's such a beautiful quote. Wow. I mean, resonates so much. And I think, you know, as a person that leads with empathy and then compassion, this is something that we can all be doing in our lives more. I mean, even, you know, not even related to race and inequality, I think just in general listening and the book, Think Again, I have not read it, although Paul and also my dad has told me a million times, you need to read this book. It's the best book I've ever read. great book. And um, I just think celebrating each other's differences. And one last thing I wanted to ask you about is, sometimes I hear this argument that if we focus so much on our differences, then that somehow will hurt us in in feeling like we're one community. And you see this right now, I know there's like this critical race theory in, in schools that's being argued, right? Where people are saying, well, the more we focus on this, like it's just gonna make whites and blacks see the differences in themselves that they've always seen. What do you say to that?
1: I say we're different. We are different. And we need to embrace our differences. And critical race theory is just history. It's right. not, it's not, it's not a theory. It's history. It's it's knowing right. our history. And so <laughs> when you start thinking of all of that kind of stuff, it's it comes down to the fact that, you know, we are we are more alike than we are different, but we are different. And yeah. our experience and perspectives are different. So if we embrace that with people and we listen again with empathy and compassion, we can be more alike because we'll understand each other better. We are not, you know, the the one thing that I that I struggle with when people say, well, I grew up, I don't, you know, again, I was on the call. I do not see color. I don't see color. Well, I'm like, well, you should. I mean, because it is it's there There, and people who are from this race are different treated differently than people from that race. And we should understand that perspective. This person from this area of town that's poor is different than this person from the rich area of town. That's a perspective that you have to understand. We are different. So it's okay to say that, but it, it, and it's okay to say that we look at someone and we see their, their differences in the way they look. It just means we need to take the time to understand them. And, yeah. and, and once they know and we we know them, we show some empathy and compassion towards them. Because you said it earlier, it's all we have to do. If we start doing that in general with everything, just imagine how much calmer things would be, You know how much peaceful, more peaceful things would be, how much we would care about each other and how much more we would get done towards all of this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think really walking away from this conversation, it's education, education, education and listening. It's actually a really simple formula when you think about it, everything else we can figure it out when we get there, but let's start really simple. Um, I just want to thank you. I mean, your story is so inspiring, but what you're doing is the work that really white people need to be doing myself included, which is, uh, it's not your job to educate us about our, about race and inequality, but you're doing it anyway. So I want to thank you for that. And, um, I just hope that we can all move forward. I feel really inspired by this conversation and, you know, hoping to educate myself more on this topic.
1: Well, thank you, Megan. I appreciate you allowing me and listening to me. It's it's always um, it's always uh, an honor, and I'm so humbled when people are willing to listen to my story and the things that I've been through. And, and hopefully, to your point, it can inspire people to think about what they can do differently to help and serve others. That's our goal.
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Megan.